following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, brothers and sisters, let's get started together. Well, I began this week... um, thinking that my Sunday would be um, slightly more restful uh, as I was only slated to come in and do service leading. Um, but yesterday, the Lord had other plans for my Sunday, and um, uh, Amanda is currently taking care of James, who spiked like 102 fever and had, had gotten sick yesterday, and so she's staying home taking care. And so I stepped in for music, and then a few hours after that phone call, I got a phone call from Jake, who is now with Amy awaiting the imminent, um, the imminent birth of, of their son that, they, that they've, by God's grace, have been able to uh, secure an adoption for. So they are literally at any moment waiting on a phone call or a text to Amy to rush to the hospital uh, to, to take and um, be part of that process. And so we'll pray for both um, Jake and Amy and for Amanda and for James in just a moment. Uh, but for now, uh, we'll pray together for what the Lord will do through uh, our own gathering and my own feeble attempt to, to lead us in God's truth this morning. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would uh, bless and honor this time. This morning as we gather under the word, it is our authority, our truth, our standard. It teaches us, instructs us, it rebukes us, it leads us into righteousness, it teaches us and shows us all things, and in it pertains everything for life and godliness. It reveals to us the splendor and the glory and the majesty of your holiness and the means by which men, sinners like us, are saved. That is through Christ, your Son, his death, and the means of our own celebration and confidence and hope that is in his resurrection. And we pray, God, that the Spirit who is promised and given to us through Christ would empower us not only and illuminate our minds to understand this text, but also to walk faithfully in light of it. Lord, I do pray, God, for those who are sick. Pray for James. God, I pray that whatever he might have contracted or bug he might have caught, Lord, that he would be cared for, loved tenderly by his mother and father, that you would give patience and strength to Amanda as she cares now for him, and that you would protect even her from potentially catching the same. Lord, I know that she desires to be with the body. She desires to to lead and serve by singing for us. And God, uh, we pray that she'd be encouraged and have a time of genuine worship this morning. We also pray, God, for for Jake and Amy, knowing very likely that uh, soon they will have a second child to care for. And everything that comes with that, the joys, the blessings, the, the many... Uh, sleepless nights to come and all of the difficulties and challenges that come with Lord children we pray for them now and uh, Lord you have consecrated every parent here in Christ to love and to care for our children and so we pray for them on the eve of this uh, of this great blessing we do pray for health for safety uh, in delivery for the mother and God we pray God that above all that even in this picture of adoption that the gospel would be seen that conversations would be had about how we have been adopted through Christ. We are sons and daughters of God, children, 
members of the household of faith, that we were wicked and far off, strangers and aliens, but God have been brought near. and We have become sons, daughters, co-heirs of the kingdom of God. So with this adoption, Jake and Amy's adoption, picture and illuminate that truth, not simply for us to marvel and celebrate, but even for the mother and the father, and for others, God, who would see the kindness, the generosity, the sacrifice of this family to, to take in at nearly a moment's notice. So we're grateful for their humility and for this uh, generous show of hospitality by taking in uh, a child. Lord, we love you. We pray for these things, as always, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Galatians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the ones next to you or on the chair somewhere. That's our gift to you. Galatians chapter 2. We're going to read in just a moment verses 11 through 14. Now we've been working our way through Galatians and we'll do that through the rest of the year. We take a break uh, just during Advent season. We'll pick up in January and should be done by the end of January, Lord willing. Galatians is a, is a shorter letter, letter from Paul to the churches of Galatia that's meant to rebuke them, correct them, but ultimately exhort them to remain faithful and steadfast to the gospel that he preached to them, in which they were planted and founded. What's happened as Paul has planted the church and moved on in his own missionary journeys is that a, a, a party of of heretics had come in and began teaching a false gospel. Paul calls them in chapter 2 false brothers. These are not genuine Christians. They are preaching and peddling a false gospel that does not lead to salvation because it preaches a works-based righteousness. Now in the first two chapters of, the, of Galatians, Paul here is really describing the history of his own calling, apostolic ministry, so that he can validate that what he has preached to them is the true gospel. That it does not come from man, but was divinely ordained and originated. In other words, God invented the gospel, not Paul or Peter or the church or anyone else. It's not an amalgamation of different relig religions and philosophies that seem to best correspond with reality. It is a divinely given Truth, the gospel is. The gospel, of course, is the good news, the proclamation of the good news that Jesus is the Son of God, who took on flesh and became a man, and in his humility suffered death for our sins. That on the cross, God poured out his wrath against our sin and unrighteousness, onto Jesus, and Jesus' death, perfect and substitutionary in nature, atones for our sins. And so if we trust and put our faith in Christ, that His work on the cross, His death and His resurrection was sufficient indeed to cover our sins, to reconcile us to God, then He gives us, offers us freely the gift of salvation. The word Paul often uses is justification, which is to be made righteous 
before God. It's a legal declaration that you who were guilty are now declared to be righteous. Not from our own work, Paul says, but through the grace of God. Justification is by faith. That gospel, as Paul preaches it, was now under attack by these false brothers. The circumcision party which had come in and began to lead the Galatians astray. They were beginning to abandon the gospel. And Paul hears this and now he's writing with them to plead, to correct, to exhort them to dismiss these brothers' false teaching, these false brothers' false teaching, and to hold fast to the gospel as he preached it. So the gospel is central to the life and the identity of a Christian because it is the means and the only means by which we are saved. Not by works, not by philosophies, not by moral standings, but only and solely by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that's an external threat that Paul writes to address. And this is real serious work that not only Paul, but the whole church is to be committed to, to weed out the external threats that try to grow in among them like weeds do among a garden. This is serious work that every church is committed to, that it may uphold the truths of Scripture, that it may defend the gospel, that it may exalt in the lordship of Christ, His death, His resurrection, in the means by our salvation only. But many of the most damning heresies and the blows to the church that have come, not from without, but from within. Even Paul himself will tell the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that wolves would come in from among them to harm the sheep. That wolves would, from the elders of the Ephesian church themselves, rise to devour and destroy the church. A prophecy which, by the way, would eventually prove true as the letter of 1 Timothy shows us. But more often than not, the dangers and the harm imposed on the church are not from such wolves that have come into the church, but by the sheep themselves. And unfortunately, even by the shepherd of the sheep, the pastors and ministers of that congregation. What's the cause of this? Why would sheep, who are known to bite, be stubborn and wander. Why would they stray from the gospel? And why would the shepherd who is charged to lead, to care for, to feed, to nourish, to protect, give to their sheep something that will kill them? Or lead them to a place where they will be devoured, if not by wolves, ultimately to suffer condemnation under the wrath of God? Why would otherwise faithful and orthodox Christians do such a thing. But the reality is, little by little, theologically faithful Christians may cede the gospel ground by succumbing to things like fear of others. They begin to betray their own convictions in order to get along a little more comfortably. The pressures of the world creep in. Christianity is hard. Jesus says that his burden is light, but all those who follow Christ will and should expect to be persecuted. It is light not simply because it's easy, 
but because Christ himself bears the ultimate burden of a perfection upon which only God will grant his righteousness. He carries that burden, and so we walk under our own cross. We die a little to ourselves, we're called to do. But when the pressures of the world come down on us, and we see a way that we can make our lives a little more comfortable, carve out a little more space, give ourselves a little bit more grace, we begin to betray our own convictions and even our own beliefs with our actions. We say one thing on a Sunday, we affirm one thing when we become members of a church, but our actions and our words elsewhere betray those beliefs. Ultimately, we will subtly begin to distort the gospel. Do we do this by adding to it, little by little, or taking away from it? This is subtle. And sometimes, in fact, often even, this is, this is done, this happens under the auspice of good intentions. Well-meaning Christians desiring to, to work well within a world that is beset by sin, that has fallen by its nature, makes a few concessions, compromises slightly here and there. And what happens is the boundaries of the gospel begin to erode. Even with good intentions, the result at any rate for a church, for the Christian, is quite disastrous. That's what's going on in chapter 2 in our text, verse 11 through 14. That there is a gradual seeding of gospel ground in Peter's life and those who would follow him. Where the boundaries should have been clear and obvious by Peter's lapse of faith and judgment, it was blurred, and he allowed himself to take steps further and further away before he crossed a very dangerous line. And Paul felt necessary to oppose him to his face before others. Let's turn to our text, chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. Paul writes, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's the summary statement he explains. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. That is, he had table fellowship with them. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We'll stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What's happening here? Well, what Paul's doing right now in this part of chapter 2 is demonstrating really the last part of his, of his historical background. Right? This is the last demonstration of his apostolic independence. Remember, he's made the case that he was saved by Christ. He received his commission by Christ. He was called to Jerusalem by Christ and to the Gentiles by Christ. That he did not receive the gospel or his calling or his mission from man. Indeed, he did not even come up with it himself, but the gospel is of a divine origin. And to prove this, he gives several demonstrations of that fact. 
his own transformation of his life, how he persecuted the church mirthlessly, zealously, after the traditions of his father, wanted Christians to repent, go back to the traditions of the father, or else be killed. He stood at the stoning of Stephen and gave his approval to such. But now as a preacher and a teacher of the gospel, his own transformation would be evident in demonstration that what he teaches and who he is has really been transformed by the gospel. He's also gone to Jerusalem and he just briefly becomes acquainted with Peter, but he meets no other apostles. He runs into James quickly, but he makes the case very clearly that he did not spend any time with the apostles early on. In fact, he went to Arabia. There God taught him, and he preached, and he labored for the sake of the gospel. And even when he did eventually come to Jerusalem, he did so because he was compelled by a vision by Christ, not because he was invited or asked, lest he seemed subservient to the leaders there in Jerusalem. And even when he gathered with the men of Jerusalem, he sought a private audience so that he can lay before them, he says, the gospel, so that he could be clear that what he is doing is not out of step with the gospel they preach. And he says, he tells us in chapter 2, that they gave him the affirmation and extended to him and to Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Even together, these men defied the same circumcision party here in verses 1 through 11 through 14 that tried to compel Titus to be circumcised, which they were not successful in. And he does all this, he says, so that those who would receive the gospel would have it without compromise. He does it so that he would preserve for them the gospel, the truth of the gospel. So this is the last demonstration of that apostolic independence. Not only does he receive the gospel call and his missionary call from Christ, not only is he following faithfully Christ and his orders alone, but he has even not simply receive the affirmation of the leaders of Jerusalem, but when necessary, approaches the leaders of Jerusalem, even Peter himself, to call him to account when he's out of step with the gospel. Let it be very clear, Paul insists, that he does not answer to anyone but Christ. Apparently, some of the people in Galatia were, were trying to undermine Paul's authority by saying, not only did he receive his call and commission from the Jerusalem apostles, but now he's out of step with them. He says, not only do we preach the same gospel, but I have to call Peter himself to account for the same gospel we preach. Though him to the Jews and I to the Gentiles, the gospel must be preserved. And so he asserts this apostolic independence before, I think, almost seamlessly transitioning into the theological portion of the letter, which he spends 2.15 through the end of chapter 4. And this gospel then is explained and unpacked, this work of justification by faith, what Christians are to do with the law and the gospel, is expounded in greater detail in those two chapters, chapters 3 and 4. What I want to do this morning then in our remaining time is just examine three issues. First is the grave error that Peter committed in Antioch that caused Paul to openly rebuke him. It's the first thing to, to examine. The error that Peter committed in Antioch that caused Paul to openly rebuke him before others. Secondly, I want to make 
a rather lengthy excursus on the nature and the place of confrontation in the Christian life. We're going to pause and take from the text an example and examination of how Christians can confront one another. And then returning back to the text again, we'll examine third, how we might walk in step with the gospel and ourselves avoid the error that Peter and others would make here. So first, let's examine Peter's grave error. There are three errors, I think, that Peter makes successively, one which builds on the other. It's here in the text. The first of Peter's errors is that of the fear of man. Notice what's happening. He, he's at Antioch. He comes from Antioch, from Jerusalem to Antioch, to share in what Paul's ministry is doing there. And he's having table fellowship with the Gentiles. This is a meaningful and very deliberate way for Christians to recognize the familial instinct of one another by sharing a meal together, even the Lord's Supper, it could be supposed. He comes and it says that before these certain men from James came, by the way, we don't know the exact relationship these men had to James. We do know that later James will record of men who were not authorized by him, stirring up trouble among some of the churches. These may very well be those men. But from James's own letters, we know that he, and from Acts chapter 15, affirms the gospel to the Gentiles as Paul would teach. But it says in verse 12, before these men came of the circumcision party, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He was having real intimate table fellowship with these Gentile and Jewish Christians together. And this was a radical change in Peter's own understanding of the gospel. Recall, for instance, in Acts chapter 10, Peter initially in Jerusalem preaching to the Jews who had gathered there at Passover and at Pentecost and helping the church thrive. And then he has a vision. And this vision of God gives to him that he would rise up, kill, and eat. And what does Peter say? No, I've never eaten any unclean thing. I will not do it. And in the vision, the Lord rebukes him and says, Do not call unclean what I have determined to be clean. And Peter understands this vision is a command from God to allow those unclean people, the Gentiles, to be welcomed in to the covenant promises of God through Christ. He believes this and he meets with a man named Cornelius who also has a vision that confirms this and he goes back to the other apostles and he goes back to the other churches in Jerusalem and he says, this is the gospel to all people, for all people. So he goes to Antioch to sit with, to fellowship with both Jews and Gentiles in the gospel. And then it says in verse 12 again, but when these men came, He drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That was what they called these Judaizers, these men who would come to demand circumcision in obedience to the law, like dietary restrictions, in order to be saved or to be holy. So Peter's first error here, after once stepping on the right and correct path of the gospel to all people, now steps off of it because he was fearful of these men. The fear of man is a very real error that all of us, at one point or another, feel. But we're not always cognizant of it. In fact, just consider several godly motivations that Peter may have had to rationalize his decision to withdraw table fellowship from the Gentiles. It may be that he felt Once these brothers had arrived, 
that he could not successfully evangelize the Jews. They would be sensitive to their laws and regulations, and to better win them to Christ, he better remain segregated with them. His mission to the Jewish Christians, perhaps he thought, would be better served if he did not consort with Gentiles. We can see, obviously, the impulse to share the gospel, to see others saved. Maybe he felt like he could have lost leadership, credibility with the Jerusalem Christians back home if they, if they had heard that he was eating with Gentiles, Jerusalem being a largely Jewish church, Antioch being a largely Gentile. Could he lose the leadership credibility, this pillar of the church there in Jerusalem, losing credibility and leadership equity with the Christians back home if these brothers went back and spoke about him negatively? And then again, for the sake of the mission, to preserve his influence to preach the gospel, he felt it necessary to make a concession or to compromise just a little. Perhaps he felt like he was protecting Jewish Christians from reprisals by these extremists. Though he doesn't agree with them, he knows that these are zealots, extremists, and may even seek reprisal on any Jew who became a Christian that would still eat in fellowship with Gentiles who were yet uncircumcised. And so to protect the other Jewish Christians back home, he appeased their demands as to take the focus off of them and on himself. Or perhaps this missional strategy was just one of accommodation. He knows they're wrong. He's understood the gospel. He's already with Paul, said that we don't need to compel Titus to be circumcised, but for a moment, for the sake of the peace and for the sake of the work of the gospel here in Antioch, I'll, I'll make an accommodation. He's trying to be lenient and graceful. He's trying to be winsome. Friends, whatever these good and godly intentions are, Paul rightly recognized that they were out of step with the gospel. However wise or prudent our actions may seem, according to human reason, they must always be informed or judged by divine revelation. The point here Paul makes is, the gospel is clear. You can't deny fellowship to any who are in Christ. You cannot demand circumcision if the gospel says that circumcision is nothing. If Christ and Christ alone saves us, then no amount of adding to it or taking away from it is acceptable. And therefore, Peter was in the wrong. He would not submit to divine revelation, but rather to his own human reasoning, made accommodations and compromises in the gospel that were setting a dangerous precedent in the church. The fear of man in Peter's life was obvious. And this is a pattern in Peter's own life. He himself was afraid at one point of even a servant girl's accusations that he was a disciple of Jesus. And though God in Christ had greatly redeemed him and sent him on his own mission and made him a bulwark of the truth of the gospel in Jerusalem and onward. Peter's own pride would come back. And here the fear of man would cause him to submit to human reason above divine revelation. Here's a lesson for us then, friends. We should be careful to whom we would grant an audience. We should be shrewd as serpents, right? Wise, discerning. 
But it doesn't mean that we can open up our, our lives to any influence, thinking that we may out-discern them, or we can protect ourselves from every influence that may come. Be careful with whom you grant an audience. The videos you watch, the podcasts you listen to, the movies, the music, anything has the ability to influence you either for the gospel or against the gospel. There are no indifferent things. Everything we take requires discernment. It must be profitable. We are not here to judge every single thing, but rather to be mindful of the fact that those who sit in authority or influence over us have a great power. And we may very well find ourselves slowly but surely eroding the gospel in our own lives as we hear, as we seed, as we submit. So take an examination of your own life. Who are the teachers in your life? And by teachers, I don't mean those who sit at the pulpit and teach you like I do now. But who do you give deference to in matters of worldly wisdom, politics, theology, family life, cultural things? Who are those teachers who may be subtly causing you to compromise in areas of the gospel which will lead to your stepping out of line with it? You must answer the question for yourself. Be careful to whom you grant an audience. The fear of man in Peter's life caused him to grant an audience with men he shouldn't have, with men he should have dismissed immediately as they began to spew their false gospel. Garbage. And yet his fearing of them led him to spurn Christians. Whatever his godly motivations might have been, if they lead him to reject divine revelation and clearly sanctioned commands of the gospel, it's wrong. That's the first of Peter's grave errors. Secondly, he possessed a failure to lead. He possessed fear of man and failure to lead. Notice the words that Paul uses here. He calls Peter a hypocrite. That he joins with them in their own hypocrite. Hypocrisy. And others follow suit. The word here for hypocrisy is one of insincere character. It's like a mask that, that, that actors will use on a stage to show that they are something other than what they really are. Here in the church, Paul means that Peter was acting inconsistently with the gospel he knows he believes. Inconsistent with what the gospel teaches. He had false intentions and pretense with these false brothers. In other words, Peter was not acting according to his true convictions, evidenced in that first Jerusalem council. But he is allowing others to lead him astray and away from the truth when he should be the one leading them to the truth. It's hypocritical of Peter to do this, to say that the gospel is for all people, the Gentiles, and to all nations, and then yet fail to receive them into fellowship in Antioch. That's what's happening here. Notice it says in verse 13 that the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. This insincerity and false pretense is at the very heart of the fear with which Peter submitted to these members. It amounted ultimately to a failure to lead. 
He should have led these men either out the door or to Christ. He should have led the Jews who were with him to embrace the Gentile Christians. Most of all, he should have led the weaker Christians to trust in the beauty and the power of the gospel to make all men one. So we see others are led astray by his failure to lead. They still followed him, but the failure to lead any to truth is a failure to lead completely. The other Jews and Barnabas followed in Peter's footsteps and very nearly cost them their souls. Again, leaders, whether you're a husband or a wife, a parent, a church leader, a teacher, whatever kind of leader you may be, know that it is incumbent upon you as a Christian to lead in a way that is consistent with the gospel. So examine your own leadership in the home, in the church, in your life, your family, at work, wherever God has placed you over an influence of others, however many or few, and ask yourself, am I leading in consistency with the gospel? Or am I leading inconsistent and insincerely? Do I have a mask on at work as I lead my coworkers or my employees? Am I leading to the truth of the gospel or am I acting hypocritically by saying one thing on Sunday and saying another on Tuesday? Peter's error was not simply just a fear of man, but it was a failure to lead. And lastly, this all amounted to a forsaking of the gospel. That's what he says in verse 4. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all, that if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This was the heart of the hypocrisy of Peter, that he wasn't even living faithfully like a Jew himself, and yet would compel other Gentiles to live like such because of the fear of these other people. This forcing, by the way, was the same word used that others tried to force Titus to be circumcised. And this same truth of the gospel is the same that Paul says, by refusing to make Titus circumcised, we preserve the truth of the gospel. So all of this seems to be up for grabs at the moment because of Peter's fear and concession and compromise of the gospel. When the word here, in step with, literally means to walk with straight feet, to walk in line or straight forward in the gospel, not erring. It's the same word we get the word orthopedic from, to be straight in our walking in the gospel. So what he's saying, Paul says, I've seen their conduct and it was not in keeping with the gospel. They were out of step with the gospel. They have taken steps off of the path and has led themselves into a dangerous place. So Peter was, in essence, withstanding God's command. Later in Acts 11, after he receives this vision by God that all the Gentiles could be saved, the circumcision party comes to him and demands to know why he's eating with Gentiles in Jerusalem. And Peter says to them, quite rightly, that this is what the God has demanded. This is what the gospel produces. And to ignore it or to reject it would be to withstand God. He sees very clearly that to reject the gospel to all would be to withstand God. And yet here, by not being in step with the gospel, he was in essence withstanding or fighting against the Lord. So this is very important. Peter's errors here amounted 
from a fear of man, a breakdown and a failure to lead, to ultimately forsake the gospel. Notice what Paul understands ultimately is happening. That Peter, because of this, stood condemned. This is a very serious accusation. Peter, by rejecting the gospel, by breaking fellowship with Christians, genuine Christians, and in essence, demanding that they live according to Jewish regulations and customs which Jesus had fulfilled, and in himself given the gospel to all, he stood condemned. Just as condemned as the anathema Paul demands any false teachers preach earlier in chapter 1. So these errors would lead ultimately to condemnation if not confronted. And this is exactly what Peter or Paul then does. Let me take that excursus then and talk quickly about the nature of Christian confrontation with you. Uh, just a few quick notes or thoughts on how to confront one another. We see from Paul how we are to, to model this. Firstly, we are to confront one another with a heart of love. Notice that Paul is said to oppose Peter because he stood condemned there in verse 11. So the, the reason that, that Paul goes to oppose Peter is not simply so that the gospel would be preserved for others, but so that Peter's own soul would be kept from condemnation. There is a heart of love and service and care for Peter that Paul exhibits here. So he confronts to preserve the integrity and the purity of the gospel and to save his brother's souls. So confrontation, we learn, seeks the good of the confronted. Biblical Christian confrontation always seeks the good of the confronted. Consider Proverbs 27, verse 5, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. If you love your brother or your sister and you see a need in their life for which they are out of step with the gospel, to love them is to openly rebuke them when necessary. If you remain hidden, your objections and your opposition to their false gospel or their tendencies to step out of line with it, then you do not show love. So Paul confronts Peter with a heart of love, of restoration. He does not put Peter out, withdraw the apostleship from him. He does not throw down his commission card and say, by the power vested in me as an apostle of Jesus Christ, you did not receive a calling from you, but from God himself. I make you now longer apostle. No. He rebukes Peter so that he would not stay condemned, but again be redeemed. He seeks the good of the confronted. How often when you go to confront a brother or sister is your heart in a place of seeking the good of the others? Quite often it may be because you want to prove yourself right. You want to demonstrate the fact that you're smarter, wiser, superior in whatever way or another. Your confrontation is to preserve some comfort or some status about yourself. Maybe it's to protect somebody that you love. But the confrontation isn't for the good of the person confronted. It's out of rebuke or retribution or vengeance. But Paul here, zealous for the gospel, opposes Peter who stood condemned because he loves Peter. He desires to see him reconciled 
Secondly, we learn that we confront one another really only over worthy manner, matters. That is, we have to make right estimations of the kinds of things that we will, are willing to confront one another over. This is important. Otherwise, all of you will just become confronters of one another constantly. Every small matter will rise to the level of importance where there's constant conflict and confrontation. You must estimate whether a matter is worthy of confrontation in the first place or whether you bear with the failings of the weak. You look, overlook the offenses of others. You encourage and are patient with. Two questions you can ask yourself to help gauge and estimate the overall importance in the unintended consequences that may happen if you confront. The first question is, is this a shortcoming of this particular person? Mainly, is this a character flaw? Well, then instead of confronting, you want to encourage. I've noticed that you have a sort of a prideful bent here, that you're boasting a little more in this. But I want to remind you that we should only boast in the Lord. Encouragement to correct that. So confrontation needs to be encouragement. The second question that you can ask yourself, if it's not a shortcoming, is this a denial of sound doctrine? Is this a denial of the gospel itself? Like Peter here in Antioch. Then by all means confront and rebuke, but do so with gentleness, as Paul will later say in Galatians. So if this is a shortcoming, this is a character matter, then you are to lovingly confront by encouraging the level at which you would decide to overlook or to be patient or to not confront at all is really dependent on whether it's a shortcoming that God through Christ and His Spirit will work out over time or whether this is a denial of sound doctrine of the gospel that requires immediate concern. So you are to possess a heart of love, to be willing to, conf- to confront over a worthy matter. Whenever possible, you are to confront in private. Notice that Paul goes to Peter. He doesn't uh, uh, gather a council. He doesn't preach on a Sunday and call Peter out in the midst of the service. He goes to Peter directly. This is a personal issue that Peter himself is guilty of, though he has led others astray. And so he goes directly to Peter. But though it is to be private whenever possible, it is also to be public whenever necessary. So not only does Paul go to Peter to his face, but also he speaks to Peter before them all. This was a necessarily public confrontation because Peter's sin and mistake and error, his lapse of faith was a public one. Because of Peter's position and authority and influence within the church, it was very dangerous to leave this unaddressed publicly. So private whenever possible, but public whenever necessary. It needs to be corrective, that is, gospel-centered, with the word driving others to Christ. The physician is good when he gives medicine that heals. Likewise, those who confront, if they leave no healing balm of the gospel, have confronted in vain and have only opened a wound that they had no intention to heal. You must correct with the gospel itself. And this is what Paul will do in the foregoing chapters. So we confront with a heart of love. We confront over a worthy matter. We do so private whenever possible, but public whenever necessary. And we are to correct with the gospel. 
a few things then to remember about our confrontation. And first is that confrontation would not be reserved for only the big sins. It's not just the big things that require confrontation. We should be daily confronting one another in many ways. The encouragement, the exhortation, the admonition, even the rebuke. Where and when necessary, we may find reason to confront one another and ourselves. Confrontation is not to be reserved for the big sins. If it is, then of course confrontation becomes this this scary and daunting thing that none of us desire to enter into. But when we welcome confrontation and regularly confront one another in peace and love and gentleness, then it is simply a daily part of our discipleship and community. But secondly, remember that confrontation, at the end of the day, is an inescapable reality of the gospel. It's an inescapable reality of the gospel. Why do I say this? Because firstly, the gospel confronts us and demands a response from us. The gospel itself confronts. What does the gospel say? You are a sinner. You are condemned before the Lord, a righteous and holy judge. You stand as a sinner condemned. It confronts us with sin, the hypocrisy of our lives, the futility of our works. We're confronted by the fact that we cannot save ourselves and must respond accordingly to that confrontation. So inherent in the gospel is the reality that we are confronted by God himself and demands a response or an answer. The answer that it demands, of course, is repentance, confession, submission, faith. But the gospel also places us in the path of other believers so that we would be confronted and that we would confront. We are saved to help our brothers and sisters continue on in their own sanctification. We confront as we've been confronted. Because we both need to be confronted by the gospel and by others, so too do we confront to help others see, to know, to experience that confrontation that the gospel brings, that they may be saved. So the biblical picture of confrontation looks like it comes from a place of love for the sake of the gospel. Because inherent in the reality of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, is confrontation itself. Now, as I said, this was a longer excursus, but come back to the, the last exhortation with me about how we can walk in step with the gospel ourselves. We do this in three ways, with assurance, authenticity, and accountability. We're to walk in step with the gospel, unlike Peter in this moment, with assurance, authenticity, and accountability. How are we to walk in step with the gospel? We are to first do so with assurance. Assurance of what? Assurance in the gospel itself, what it is and what it has accomplished. In fact, go with me to Romans chapter 8. And notice the the assurance that the gospel provides here. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. Paul says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed, who indeed is interceding for us. Or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? 
Verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor present things nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This truth and promise of the gospel provides such an assurance that frees us from the sin of the fear of man. If you want to walk in step with the gospel, it means to possess the kind of conviction and confidence and assurance that the gospel produces this for you, that you cannot be separated from the love of God. No matter what your boss says, your family member says, about what those people say, about what the world says, about those sheep in our church or the wolves in sheep's clothing, whatever anyone says, your confidence in the gospel should move you or should never move you from this truth that you can never be separated from the love of God. This is the promise of assurance that we must possess, that we may fight against the sin of the fear of man. So to walk in step with the gospel is to possess such assurance. Secondly, we are to walk with authenticity. Now that could be a buzzword today. Everyone wants to be authentic. And by that I don't simply mean that you should be able to do and say whatever you want and say, well, that's just who I am. That kind of authenticity is not biblical authenticity. Because there are parts of you and who you are that don't need to be that way and should change. But when I say authenticity, I mean, unlike Peter in this moment, not hypocritical, sincere. That simply means to, to walk what you talk or to practice what you preach, whatever you want to say about it, to be sincere and not hypocritical in your faith. What ultimately this means, to be authentically Christian, means to say, because this is true, because I have in the gospel a blessed assurance, I will be willing to suffer condemnation, ostracism, even death, for the convictions and the truth of the gospel. Authenticity means I genuinely, authentically believe and will live sincerely, no matter what the cost. A picture of this for us is Christ himself. He suffered for his own convictions, his convictions, of course, that we needed saving and that his life was the only one which could bring us to God. And so he gives himself for that cause that we might be brought to joy and grace and salvation because he was sincere. Christ's belief and trust in the Father's work was authentically true, and the cross saves us because of it. And so if we want to walk in step with the gospel, we are not only to walk with assurance, but with authenticity, that we are to live out those true and powerful statements of the gospel that are promised to us in the, in the Bible. We'll sing a, a song here in a moment by Martin Luther. The ending verse tells us and exhorts us to let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. For the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. We can live authentic Christian lives rooted in the assurance of the gospel and what it has done for us. Christ's death atoning for our sins and God's love keeping us in the presence of him forever in his kingdom allows us to walk authentically and sincerely in this world no matter the costs. And lastly, to walk in step with the gospel means to walk with accountability. At the end of the day, Peter had Paul to rebuke him. Where would Peter be without Paul? 
Would he have continued down the path of hypocrisy, of legalism, of the Judaism? Then there would be no gospel. And perhaps Peter's own soul would have been condemned. Accountability here is the number one key for us as a church to practice. That is, the church and church membership and the brothers and the sisters here among you are the means by which we are held accountable to faithful walking and in step with the gospel. That is the greatest gift apart from the Spirit which God has given us for our faithful walking. So if we desire to step, walk in step with the gospel, not only must we believe and have a full assurance of the gospel and what it has accomplished, and so walk with sincerity and authenticity and submit ourselves to the accountability of the church and church membership to which we belong and rely upon the Holy Spirit's guidance and keeping and sanctification that we look to Christ as the means by which we are saved and continue to be kept. At the end of the day, Paul then reminds us that it is the gospel which saves us. We must not compel ourselves or others around us by our hypocrisies that we are saved by our own works. But it is Jesus himself, his death, his resurrection, which keeps us, saves us, and motivates us. And so when we confront one another, the errors of our lives, the fear of man, hypocrisy, and legalism, we are to do so in love, looking to Christ, who laid his own life down for the sake of our sins. We look to our example in Paul, who by the strength of his convictions opposed a pillar of the church so that he could save his soul and protect the purity of the gospel which we believe and have saved our own. Let's pray. Father, there's more to say about this issue and more to confront in our own lives, but uh, we ask for this time, Lord, you would just simply allow us to understand that we, we need confronting. And I, I do pray that in some measure the gospel has confronted us, this truth, of Jesus' death and resurrection makes very clear and plain to us, to our face, as it were, our need of your grace. And so I pray, I pray for that. I pray that we would love one another well, that we would confront one another well in our discipleship, and that above all, we would allow ourselves to submit only to your word and to the gospel of Christ and to no other, to not be led astray by these false teachers. Help us, God, to do this by the strength of your spirit. Help us to lean into the community which you've given us at foundation and to walk humbly in the spirit as we walk in step with the gospel and the calling to which we've been called. We ask you because we cannot do it in our strength, but in the power that you provide through Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.